from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, September 25th. I'm Marco Werman. Today, Obama and Romney offer contrasting views of America's role in the world. The United States has not and will not seek to dictate the outcome of democratic transitions abroad. I'll never apologize for America. I believe that America has been one of the greatest forces for good the world has ever known. And later, Scottish singer Julie Fowlis gives us her take on identity. In Gaelic, when you ask somebody where you're from, you use the phrase, which actually literally translated means, who are you from? PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH and Frontline, come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the education desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman and this is The World. This was supposedly a presidential campaign, not about foreign policy, but today the subject was front and center for both candidates. President Obama and Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney delivered speeches about foreign policy today in New York City, and the two men offered contrasting visions of what America's role should be in shaping global events. The world's Jason Margolis begins our coverage. Mitt Romney addressed an international audience this morning. He was speaking in New York at former President Bill Clinton's annual conference for his Clinton Global Initiative. It was a subdued political speech compared with some of his recent rhetoric on the campaign trail. Romney never once mentioned President Obama. Romney devoted the bulk of his speech to his vision for foreign aid, which includes a greater emphasis on supporting private enterprise. He also briefly addressed current events in the Middle East. A lot of Americans including myself, are developed, excuse me, are troubled by developments in the Middle East. Syria has witnessed the killing of tens of thousands of people. The president of Egypt is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Our ambassador to Libya was assassinated in a terrorist attack. Iran is moving toward nuclear weapons capability. We somehow feel that we're at the mercy of events rather than shaping events. Romney returned to an idea he often expresses, a belief in American exceptionalism. I'll never apologize for America. I believe that America has been one of the greatest forces for good the world has ever known. We can hold that knowledge in our hearts with humility and unwavering conviction. Later in the morning, President Obama addressed the United Nations General Assembly. There, the president offered a different vision of America's role in the world. Now, let me be clear, just as we cannot solve every problem in the world... The United States has not and will not seek to dictate the outcome of democratic transitions abroad. We do not expect other nations to agree with us on every issue. But there was one issue the president said was non-negotiable. Iran cannot be allowed to develop nuclear weapons. America wants to resolve this issue through diplomacy. And we believe that there is still time and space to do so. But that time is not unlimited. 
We respect the right of nations to access peaceful nuclear power. But one of the purposes of the United Nations is to see that we harness that power for peace. Make no mistake, a nuclear-armed Iran is not a challenge that can be contained. It would threaten the elimination of Israel, the security of Gulf nations, and the stability of the global economy. The president ended his speech where he began, praising the life and service of American Ambassador Chris Stevens, who was killed two weeks ago in Libya. The president condemned the video that sparked the outrage, but also spoke at length about the need to protect free speech, even when it's hateful. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Neither Romney nor Obama mentioned drones today. Unmanned aircraft armed with missiles have become key tools in America's arsenal, and controversial ones, too. They are routinely used to strike down terror suspects in northwestern Pakistan, for example. But drone strikes there have also killed many civilians, and that breeds resentment of the United States. Rosa Brooks is a law professor at Georgetown University and a fellow at the New America Foundation. And Christine Fair is an assistant professor also at Georgetown University. Both have studied U.S. drone use in Pakistan's tribal territories. Christine Fair says American drone strikes are often preferable to the destruction that can occur when Pakistan's military uses its F-16 fighter jets to go after militants. When they have engaged, they have displaced millions, literally millions. And uh, when I went to South Waziristan with the Pakistan military to the McKean Valley, what you saw was complete devastation from their conventional F-16 strikes. In contrast, you do not see this kind of displacement happening with drones. Let me jump in. I mean, how much do you think drones have become the face of of U.S. military engagement as much as they have a face? I mean, they're pretty anonymous. Rose, uh, <laughs> they've become the, the faceless face of U.S. military engagement. Christine is, is, is quite right to say that we should always ask the question, we say something like, well, drones are bad or drones kill, kill civilians or drones do this. Or that. We should always say, well, you know, compared to what? You know, compared to what alternatives? And I, and I, and I think that there are many, there are, there are absolutely times when the use of unmanned aerial vehicles uh, is, is going to be a better and appropriate alternative to pursue our counterterrorism aims than, for instance, using conventional aircraft, than putting troops on the ground, et cetera. The tough question, though, is that even when we do the right thing for the right reasons, uh, two tough questions, and one we can save for later in the discussion, if you like, is, is, is the rule of law issues. And the other is what you might call the, the strategic communication issues, that Perception, as we as we have seen in recent weeks over the uh, riots in Libya and elsewhere, perception can matter as much as reality. And particularly when we're talking about a program that remains largely covert and unacknowledged, the perceptions of the program, not just in Pakistan, but globally, including in, in allied nations, can hurt us quite badly, even if we believe it's entirely wrong. Well, I mean, it's interesting because our leaders uh, haven't really been talking about drone use. So talk about the way drone use isn't being talked about in the public sphere. I mean, why is that? It makes it feel like it is covert. Well, it is, in fact, largely covert, not entirely, but largely. And drone use is the most talked about and overt of covert things. Uh, In fact, there is litigation going on right now. The ACLU, The New York Times and other other actors uh, are seeking records from the intelligence community relating to drone strikes that, that, as the administration would put it, may or may not have been carried out by the CIA. And the administration is essentially arguing, we have never admitted this, we never will admit it's happening as long as we don't admit it's happening. Officially speaking, it isn't happening. 
or we can't comment on whether it's happening. Meanwhile, of course, uh, many senior officials from President Obama uh, to Leon Panetta, both while he was CIA director and in his current position as Secretary of Defense, have seemingly alluded fairly transparently to the drone program, commented on it, as have other senior officials. So we're existing in this strange world in which, because no one has uttered the magic words, the CIA is carrying out a drone program and here is what it consists of, the administration is maintaining that this remains, if there is or isn't anything, whatever it is, is covert if it is there. And yet at the same time, it's obviously widely discussed and in fact, Mm. uh, boasted about to some extent by senior administration officials. Right. And there's not like a big movement in the United States against drones. Whereas if you go to Pakistan, I mean, it seems that Pakistani leaders and the Pakistani public see drones as a serious problem. Perhaps there's some political theatrics in that position. But why is there such a disconnect, Christine, between how it's uh, how drones are viewed in Pakistan and the lack of challenge in the United States to drone use? First of all, I, I would disagree that uh, with the claim that there is no opposition here. There is growing opposition. One of the impediments to transparency is not just the CIA. It's also Pakistan's intelligence. The Pakistani intelligence organization, the ISI, wages routine psychological operations and how drones are reported and in how they essentially manipulate public outrage towards the Americans. They do this strategically. By fanning the flames of anti-Americanism, they then use that antagonism, which they help to generate. In fact, the ISI has a, a media cell, which is dedicated to doing precisely these things. They then use that animosity as wiggle room to tell the Americans, well, we can't do this because, you know, it's already so unpopular. As unique a situation as Pakistan is, Christine, you make that point. It does seem like Pakistan offers some examples uh, for future drone use. The Pentagon announced in recent weeks it's provided 66 different countries with drone technology. What would both of you do differently about drone use at this point? Increase it, decrease it, eliminate it altogether, tweak it? Personally, I, I feel it's very hard to make that assessment when there's no transparency about who's being targeted and with what efficacy and what those people did. The lack of transparency is both uh, an artifact of the CIA's position, but equally, and I think even more so, that of Pakistan intelligence. So I I just think it's hard to say without knowing who's being targeted and with what uh, impact and with what outcomes. Rosa Brooks, last word to you. What would you do? There is no way to evaluate whether this is working strategically and, in fact, getting us closer to a time when we are safer from terrorist-related threats emanating from those regions. There is no way to evaluate whether we are targeting the right people or the wrong people. There's no way to discuss whether we need tighter accountability, better mechanisms to prevent against abuses, et cetera, et cetera, because we really do not know and our government is not telling us. And while I think there are unquestionably moments and reasons for keeping information classified, when such a large swathe of uh, U.S. foreign policy goes black, you know, a swathe large enough to have, uh, as best we can tell, killed three or more thousand people, uh, an unknown number of whom may have been civilians. We don't know. That's a real problem if you want to live in a democracy. Rosa Brooks is a law professor at Georgetown University and a fellow at the New America Foundation. Christine Fair is an assistant professor also at Georgetown University. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, Marco.
There is a non-controversial role for drones in Pakistan. They can take aerial pictures of some extraordinary natural beauty. Remo Messina is a drone operator for Dedicam, which is a company that specializes in using remote-controlled helicopters to shoot video. Now, Remo, you were in Pakistan using a remote-controlled aircraft, but not for the military. You were in the Himalayas in the dramatic Karakoram mountain range. Tell us what you were doing. Our goal was to capture the climbers David Lama and Peter Ordner uh, by climbing the Triangle Tower. And the challenge was to get some aerial footage from, from the day when they climbed up the mountain. And why not just use helicopters like a lot of uh, camera crews do? The drone gives you a special angle and you can go much closer than with the real one. And it's also much easier. just can take your your helicopter, your small helicopter in your pocket, and uh, you don't have to fly down there. So what kind of results do you get from uh, using remote-controlled aircraft to do the photography for you? Is it you, you get images that you've never seen before? Yeah, you can offer a special angle. Um, if you take a real helicopter, you're further away. If you're on the wall, you, you're just very close and just additional additional angle to documentation, the, the, the climbing. Give us a description of, of some of the images you got that just, you know, even struck you as pretty extraordinary. I think the best picture I got was from the summit when I just just got the, the call on the walkie-talkie and I flew up and I seen the, the three guys on the top of this mountain and I could fly around and this, this was really impressive for me. Well, you can see some of Remo's amazing drone footage. We have videos at theworld.org. Remo Messina, drone operator for Dedicam, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Still ahead, Ethiopia's unique legacy in the U.S. military on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, joining with the World Heart Federation to celebrate World Heart Day, September 29th, with a focus on women, children, and heart disease. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We're hearing a lot these days about disappearing ice. Well, the big news this summer has been the record melting of the Arctic ice cap, but glaciers around the world are melting as well. In most places, local residents have been able to do little more than lament the loss. But in the mountains of Peru, some folks are looking for ways to save their glaciers. Here's The World's Daniel Grossman. 14,000 feet up in Peru's Cordillera Blanca, Glaciologist Benjamin Morales stands in a windswept dirt parking lot and looks across a rock-strewn slope. In the 80s and 90s, thousands of people came here. They came to see the famous international ski tournament, and all of this was ice. The skiers back then raced down the glistening white Pastoruri Glacier nearly all the way to this dusty lot. Since then, Morales has watched the glacier steadily melt away. Today, its closest edge is about a mile from the parking lot. It's been regressing year after year, and this has caused the most important adventure tourism site in Peru to be all but closed. Morales knows that this glacier is hardly unique. Glaciers around the world are falling victim to global warming. Morales estimates that Peru has already lost at least 25% of its Andean ice. And what's at stake here is more than just a few ski slopes. Peru is largely a desert country, and its thirst is relieved largely by glacier-fed streams. 
So glaciers here are a vital natural resource. That's why a few years ago, Morales decided he had to do more than simply watch the ice melt. We want to find ways to stop this loss of good water. Morales thought long and hard about how he could stop the local effects of a global problem. Then one day it struck him, sawdust. Sawdust is traditionally used in Huaraz, where I live, to protect ice from melting. People bring blocks of ice from the mountains and cover these blocks with sawdust. Morales thought if sawdust can insulate a block of ice, maybe it could insulate a whole glacier. So we bought 150 big sacks of it from a sawmill, hired a crew to cart it to the tongue of the glacier, and had them cover a backyard-sized plot in about six inches of sawdust. Today, ten months later, Morales is showing me the experiment's results. The impact is stunning. The entire ice edge melted and sank in the summer thaw, everywhere except the sawdust-insulated plot, which remained stubbornly frozen. So we have proven that it's possible to prevent glaciers from melting. And having established that sawdust will insulate glaciers, Morales is now looking at other materials, like locally harvested straw. And he's not alone in his efforts to save Peru's glaciers. Several hundred miles south, near the city of Ayacucho, Herder Salomon Pichka is part of an effort to bring back a glacier that's already gone away. Pichka used to graze livestock in marshes nearby. But when the local glacier disappeared, the marshes dried up. Without water, there is no grass for the livestock, and it dies. Pichka is part of a work crew a couple of miles above the nearest road. He's slathering homemade white paint onto black boulders near a summit called Chalon Sombrero. It's backbreaking work. We bring the lime here on llamas and unload it, and then we start bringing the water. Pichka and the rest of the crew mix lime and other ingredients with water. They lug buckets of the paint up the rugged slope and slosh it onto the sun-warmed rocks. Eduardo Gold, an entrepreneur from Lima, who's the project's architect, watches from nearby. This idea comes from a really simple fact, which is that the color white reflects light and prevents the transformation of that light into infrared radiation. Simply put, white rocks don't get as warm as black ones. Gold hopes an entire white slope will dramatically cool off high mountain breezes. That means summits like Chalon Sombrero could once again be cold enough to retain snow and ice year-round, beginning the process of rebuilding a glacier. So far, Gold's men have whitewashed an area the size of a supermarket parking lot, He says the paint has already brought back wisps of ice to the mountain. If this works, we'll obviously want to do this on the remaining mountains. The World Bank has named Gold's experiment one of 100 ideas to save the planet. The project has also been embraced by regional officials. But many remain skeptical. Luis Alfaro is a former chief of Peru's Park Service. From a theoretical point of view of physics, one can understand. But the question is, at what price? Alfaro worries, among other things, 
about the environmental impact of the paint when it washes off the rocks. Meanwhile, others argue that tiny projects like painting mountaintops or insulating glaciers can never save the hundreds of square miles of mountain ice that still remain in Peru. Instead, they argue, Peru must build new reservoirs to capture and store the water once held in glaciers. But Peru can hardly afford such huge investments, and with its life-giving water supply at risk, many here, like former Deputy Environment Minister Vanessa Vero, feel the country can't afford to dismiss any idea for saving its glaciers. We don't know if it's going to work or not, but since we need to experiment and to try to uh, conserve water for the future, I think that we should try. I think that we should try. For the world, I'm Daniel Grossman, Lima, Peru. Daniel's story was produced with help from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting and the Whole Systems Foundation. We've got a photo of those painted slopes on Chalon Sombrero at theworld.org. And while you're there, add your thoughts. What would you do to save part of your local landscape that's being altered by climate change? What are you doing already? Share your ideas at theworld.org. On a separate note, Zimbabwe has been suffering its own climate crisis lately, a severe drought. The U.N.'s World Food Program estimates that 1.6 million people in the country's rural areas will need food assistance early next year. That's a 60 percent increase from this year. Bulawayo is Zimbabwe's second city and has experienced a water shortage for five years. The city's one million residents are often without running water days in a row, and that's taken a toll on the plumbing. Sewage pipes can get too dry to function properly. So the mayor of Bulawayo has ordered residents to flush their toilets all at once on Mondays and Thursdays to clear the pipes. The BBC's Brian Hongwe says this will help purge the pipes of air pockets. The logic behind having all residents flushing their toilets all at once, it is to allow for a whole mass of water to flow and kill the airlock, which will be in the pipelines, who is responsible for creating pressure which cracks some of these pipelines. Some of these pipelines are very, very old. Those old sewer systems are often to blame for the outbreak of diseases like typhoid and cholera. It's too soon to tell whether Bulawayo's first big flush yesterday was successful, but many residents say it's time for the city to replace the antiquated plumbing. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a Brazilian couple united by traffic. They were, you know, on that routine of the stop and go of the traffic, and they started to exchange glances uh, through the windows of the car, and uh, the guy, Mauricio, started to hit on, on Fabiana, and then he convinced her to stop at the petrol station. They exchanged phone numbers. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. China is expected to go through a once-a-decade leadership transition next month. 
or maybe the month after, or maybe in two weeks. Nothing has been officially announced, as you can tell. It's been an unusually rocky year for China's leadership, with factional struggles and the downfall of a powerful Politburo member whose wife is in prison for murdering a British businessman. With all that unfolding in public, the world is watching carefully. Chinese people, not so much. The world's Mary Kay Magsad reports from Beijing. A hired driver named Ma Zhonghe leans against his car, enjoying a balmy Beijing afternoon. If he has a care in the world, it's certainly not about who's going to step in as the next leaders of his country and when. It's just one generation after another. It won't be worse. It can only be better. <laughs> well, all right. There is one thing he hopes the new leadership will take care of. The price of everything goes up, but the wages. I just want to see something better to the common people. Ma Zhanghe hadn't heard that the presumptive new leader, Xi Jinping, had disappeared for two weeks this month, and he doesn't much care. Around the corner, a young fruit vendor named Fan Lin Lin pauses from reading a newspaper to talk about the party congress. Do you think the party congress will make a, a difference in your life, the change of leadership? No impact, she says. I ask if she'd like China's new leaders, whenever they take office, to make any particular changes. She says the leaders' priorities are probably different from ordinary people like me. I ask if she thinks the leaders listen to people like her. I don't think so, she says. It's complicated. This sense of detachment is pretty common among many Chinese, which gives the country's fractured leadership some latitude in managing their thoroughly opaque transition of power. Smart money is on the once every five year party congress being held next month, and rosters of likely names of leaders have already been circulating among foreign analysts, not in the state-run media. Now we're about to have a new leadership. We're not quite sure what that's going to be. Orville Shell heads the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. He spoke this month at the World Economic Forum in Tianjin. Are these people still going to be able to get stuff done? Are they going to have to become much more open, much more uh, democratic in their style of governance? We really don't know. What is known is that China's economic growth is slowing, income disparity is growing, the population is aging, and economic and political reform are long overdue. Even a journal published by the Communist Party School blasted the outgoing leadership in a recent article for not being more courageous on implementing political reform, and that suggests that a different style of leadership is needed for this new phase of China's development. Wang Haiyan wrote a book on business leadership in China and India. She too spoke at the World Economic Forum in Tianjin. When you have a manufacturing-driven society, you need precision, you need execution, you need task-oriented leadership. But when you try to move towards the next stage, that you know to overcome that middle-income trap, you really need an innovation. That innovation, you know, comes through gathering better ideas. But knowing what's needed and being willing to give up the privileges and power of the current system before it's absolutely necessary are two very different things. Jean-Pierre Cabestan heads Hong Kong Baptist University's Department of Government and International Studies. The future is very open,、uh, but at the same time, the, the current leadership is not ready, really, and strong enough to make bold changes and introduce the most daring reforms which the country would need in the future. But they may be pushed anyway by an increasingly demanding public with a growing ability to voice their gripes and demands online. 
Beifang, a prominent Cantonese blogger now in Hong Kong, sees this as a good thing for his country. It's difficult to know whether what the politicians are doing is genuine or not. We have to watch how they act and what they do. I think citizens need to constantly monitor the government. Even Fan Linlin, the fruit vendor, who is not online, says it's a little odd once she thinks about it that she and other Chinese know so little about when their future leaders will take over or who they'll be. She says it would be nice to have a more transparent system where people like me would get to know what's going on. It just hasn't started yet. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Now, don't loosen your safety belt yet for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for a city with nightmarish traffic jams. This city in Brazil is home to some 20 million people. The cityscape is defined by some of the country's tallest skyscrapers. And up in the sky, helicopters are a common sight. They ferry passengers who'd rather hop a chopper ride than deal with the city's gridlock on the ground. Local traffic reporter Victoria Ibero knows how bad it can get down at street level. Chaos. Chaos, chaos. Every Friday, especially when it's close to the uh, long weekend, about 6 o'clock, <laughs> nobody moves. We have too many cars and we have too many trucks, taxis, it's everybody, it's too many people. You know, if you can, don't go out, stay there where you are. So, which Brazilian megacity are we talking about? The answer is a few minutes away. One of the great things about co-producing this program with the BBC is the incredible range of voices you get to hear. For example, this week the BBC spoke with an unusual military veteran, Captain Mamo Habtewald. He's now 81, but 60 years ago Mamo was a young officer in the Imperial Guard of Ethiopia. That was when Emperor Haile Selassie answered a call from the United Nations to send troops to Korea to fight the communists. In Addis Ababa, the Emperor Haile Selassie reviews an Abyssinian battalion off to Korea to join the United Nations Army. Always when the battalion going to Korea, he came himself. Mamo vividly remembers seeing the emperor. And he giving each battalion a flag. As he gave us that flag, he ordered us to bring that flag back. And all the battalion did that very, very successfully. Mamo's unit was attached to the U.S. Army's 7th Division. At the time, the army had just been desegregated. But Mamo says racism was not an issue for the Ethiopian soldiers. We Ethiopians are proud and boasting that we are Ethiopians. We don't care any color. And the, the Americans, they don't call us Negro. The Ethiopian soldiers soon won a reputation as tough fighters, earning the respect of their American allies. We are... Best fighters, the three battalions fought 253 battles. No prisoner captured from Ethiopia in Korea War. That's Ethiopia motto, never be captured in the war field. 
By 1953, the Korean War had degenerated into a bitter trench war, as this old U.S. newsreel makes plain. Men fight and die for battered bunkers and shell-scarred trenches on the barren rocky slopes. Daily, U.N. troops march into battle to pay in blood and pain for strategic hills. Mama was stationed at a place named Porkchop Hill. One night in May, he led a patrol into no man's land. He had no idea that coming the other way was a full-scale Chinese assault. Well, 14 Ethiopians was me and one American, all together was 15 men. It is written we fought 300, one man against 20. They killed four of, from our patrol, including the American corporal, and all of us are wounded. Wounded and trapped in no man's land, Mamo fought on, desperately searching for a working radio to call in artillery support. He gave his pistol to another Ethiopian to cover him while he searched. He was worried he would pass out. That time I'm afraid maybe I'll be captured. I want to kill myself. And when I ordered the soldier to give me back my pistol, he refused me. Dreading the thought of being captured and dishonoring the flag of Emperor Haile Selassie, Mamo hunted for another weapon among the dead. Then the Chinese attacked again, and Mamo continued fighting. Eventually, he found a radio and called in the American artillery. That stopped the Chinese offensive in its tracks, and it won the young Ethiopian, the American Silver Star, for gallantry. He was the only man left standing. When they went all to hospital, I am the only man back to the... My banker. I was depressed very much. Ethiopia lost 121 men in the Korean War. More than 500 were wounded. After the war, they returned to Addis Ababa and a hero's welcome. It was really a big day, especially when you came back from Korea. We brought the dead, all the dead men with us. It was uh, Addis was so so crowded. Half of the people are weeping. It was a big ceremony, especially when we came back. The practice of bringing the dead home from a foreign war was unusual at the time. It was a custom that impressed Ethiopia's American allies, and the U.S. began doing the same thing in 1953. Mamo Habtuwold spoke with the BBC in Addis Ababa earlier this week. You can hear more of his story at theworld.org. Back to our GeoQuiz now, and for the answer, we're going to the BBC's Paulo Cabral in the Brazilian city known for its nightmarish traffic jams. And Paulo, we were supposed to do this interview with you about an hour ago. What, what happened? Well, traffic jams, as you were saying. No, sorry, I was expecting to be here in about 20 minutes, but the trip took more than one hour. So uh, traffic in Sao Paulo. And you know, this time it is true, but I must say that traffic is always a very good standing excuse in Sao Paulo. You know, whenever you're late, just say it's the traffic. People have no reason to doubt you. <laughs> they believe you anyway. I mean, give us a sense of just how bad it is there in Sao Paulo. And is it getting worse, in your opinion? It's bad and it's getting worse. Uh, why is it bad? First, because it's a city that's not good at all planning. So Sao Paulo has very poor uh, public transport. The city is spread in a large area. You know, usually people live in one corner of the city and end up working uh, elsewhere. So this just end up create, ends up creating uh, 
terrible traffic jams and things just got much worse over the last decade, actually because of Brazilian economic growth and prosperity. You know that in Brazil we had 30 million people that actually rose from poverty into uh, this new lower middle class over the last years and uh, owning a car is kind of the ultimate proof that now you belong to the middle class. So uh, it's not only about moving around town but moving around in style and showing that you're not poor anymore. So uh, uh, many people, millions of people actually come coming into the Brazilian streets driving. So how do all the drivers cope? I mean, all those hours spent in traffic jams, that must change the lives of the paulistas. How do they cope with all the lost time? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I I often see people stuck in the traffic jam, either shaving or the ladies putting makeup. That's the thing that you're going to see often in in Sao Paulo traffic jams. And uh, they're selling like there's no tomorrow. You know, those little DVD videos that you can watch in the car. That's extremely dangerous, actually. The the little players, the DVD portable players. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the portable players, you know. And then uh, you see more and more people watching uh, these portable players in their cars instead of only uh, listening to the radio. Street sellers everywhere, you know. I mean, they have the Obvious, like food refreshments, but also uh, toys and sometimes uh, fortune tellers, you know, in the middle of the wow. traffic jams. Let me tell you also one very interesting story. You know, it's in this uh, documentary I have prepared for the BBC about traffic. We've talked to this lady. She lives in the far north of São Paulo and her place of work is in the far south of the city. So she takes uh, at least two hours every day to go from home to work. And of course, that's exasperating. You know, she's got a six months old kid that often is, is with her in the car. But then when she gets back home, she has to remember the bright side of traffic for her because she met her husband in a traffic jam. Uh, And uh, it's a very interesting story. Yes, they were uh, on this big avenue in Sao Paulo called Ricardo Jaffe. And they were, you know, on that routine of the stop and go of the traffic. And they started to exchange glances uh, through the windows of the car and... uh, uh, the guy Mauricio started to hit on on Fabiana, and then he convinced her to stop at the petrol station. They exchanged phone numbers, and well, the result is that they've been married now for nine years. So yeah, I mean, it's possible to have a, a bright side to the misery of traffic jams, but um, not easy to find, you know. Great story. I mean, who needs Match.com? Just get stuck in a Brazilian traffic jam. <laughs> Paulo, I've read that uh, Sao Paulo has the world's largest helicopter fleet. Are the skies now becoming congested? Yes, they are. You know, I mean, it's it's one thing that whenever you look to the skies in Sao Paulo, you're going to see a, a, a chopper hovering. You know, that's uh, that's part of, of the city's landscape or airscape. And I remember even once when I went to take a, a flight, I had to do some aerial uh, filming of Sao Paulo. And then I asked the pilot if he could go to a certain location in South Sao Paulo. And he said, yes, I can, but I have to go around over that avenue because on this avenue, there's so much traffic that helicopters can only fly in one direction you know wow. um, yeah so actually you have already problems with uh, with helicopters congestion in Sao Paulo it's it's awful I mean it's really bad I, I advise you if you come to Sao Paulo try and use the good public transport that you have the metro you know driving around the city it's confusing it's lots of traffic jams hard to park and road rage is a bit of an issue as well you know you can imagine with all the stress yeah. people are not too happy when driving The BBC's Paolo Cabral speaking with us from the calm of the Sao Paulo BBC studio after another few hours stuck in a traffic jam in that big city. Paolo, thanks so much. Thank you very much. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International.
PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Ryder Cup golf tournament is coming up this weekend in Chicago. The competition pits a European all-star team of golfers versus their counterparts from the U.S. And even though this year's venue is on American soil, the event will have a certain Scottish flavor to it. That Scottish singer Julie Fowlis, you might remember her from the soundtrack for this past summer's animated blockbuster from Pixar, Brave. Well, the Scottish Gaelic singer is taking part in the Ryder Cup. She's not teeing up on the green. She's performing in a Ryder tribute to Scotland's central role in golf history. There are um, several events connected to the Ryder Cup that are going on, I guess, a celebration of Scottish culture that have been organised kind of uh, almost at government level from Event Scotland, Creative Scotland, some of the national agencies have put together kind of big events. There's quite a lot going on. I think there's like about 35 musicians coming over from Scotland for, for this alone. Those performances will be entertainment at the Ryder Cup, but they're also a form of cultural politics. See, there's an ongoing debate in Scotland over whether or not to declare independence from Britain, or at least push for greater autonomy. That movement away from Mother Britain is known as devolution. For Julie Fallis, though, it's less complex. Representing Scotland at the Ryder Cup is about identity, telling the world that Scotland is Scottish. I think the question of identity, it's just, uh, it's such an interesting concept that you know who who you're from and in Gaelic when you ask somebody where you're from you use the phrase course how which actually literally translated means who are you from mm. so it's this idea of the people who came before you and who you belong to and I think it's that kind of um, for many people it's um, something they search for their entire lives and uh, it's something that I just I'm very I'm fascinated by and um, I'm just very interested in. Right well since the Gallic greeting is uh, who are you from tell me about this isle that you come from in the Outer Hebrides and who is there? What, what's your family? <laughs> what's your clan? Well my mother, mother's side are all from, from US and they're McDonald's. My father's side no, you just, um, you just said the name of the island, Uist, is that it? Uist, Uist. yeah, North Uist. And that's kind of the middle island um, in the string of islands known as the Outer Hebrides or the Western Isles. And um, apart from one other island called St Kilda, that's really the last stop in Scotland, the next stop is is the east coast of Canada and the United States. So we're the kind of the last outpost, if you like. And what does that mean in terms of music being so far out there? Well, I guess um, one of the things that we've always tried to do is try to be true to the songs and the tradition in the sense that we try and keep the songs in the in the in the correct structure and the same kind of tempo and feel as they would normally be sung in. I think it's important to know for anyone who hasn't who's not aware of the tradition most of these songs would be sung and accompanied traditionally. But it's a it's a nice using instruments is a great way to introduce audiences to this music who can't follow every word and they can't follow the beautiful poetry and the exciting uh, stories or 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 the humor in songs. So you have to give people another way in and and, and I guess instrumental music and accompany is a great way to do that. Get the Almigo Ganyan in you. 
know, through music, you've kind of become one of the secret weapons, if you will, in the devolution movement in Scotland. Uh, how do you see your... <laughs> maybe I'm... Am, you, you laugh and maybe I'm overstating it. But do you see it that way? Do you see your role uh, as a musical one in that fight? Um, well, I guess if, if, if the fight is trying to stand up for your own culture and your own identity, well, I, I guess, yeah, that is what I'm trying to do. But, um, you know, I never started out with a political agenda at all. And that's, um, you know, that's not the driver for me. The driver is um, primarily about celebrating a really important culture that has been under threat and under pressure and um, has suffered severely over the last few hundred years. And I guess people do use music as as a weapon, if you like, but um, that's not the first and foremost most important thing for me. But I, I think standing up for what you believe in, it's kind of obvious in a way. And standing up for national identity you don't see as a, as a political kind of... Well, well, of course, yeah. That's I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, it, people do use music as a as a kind of tool and as a weapon, and it's a very divisive, uh, emotive tool, of course, as well. It's a, sure. a great way to bring people in. Um, although it's not the driver for me, I guess the way that um, that Scotland is, we have very big decisions to take in the next two years, and um, looking onto 2014 and a possible vote on our own future. I think it's a huge decision to take and one that shouldn't be taken lightly, but it's something that people, I think, should really engage in. And that vote on the future of Scotland uh, by 2014, I mean, shorthand for it, it'll be essentially a vote on Scottish independence. Is that right? Essentially, yeah. And that that debate has been gaining momentum, albeit quite slowly, the last year. Um, And it's something that I just hope people will really engage in. It's a once in a lifetime decision as well. This this chance won't come around again. When the cold winds are calling and the sky is clear and bright, misty mountains sing and beckon, lead me out into the light. I will ride, I will fly, chase the wind and touch the sky. Now, Touch the Sky, that's the standout song that you sang in the Pixar animated drama Brave uh, this past summer. It plays such a central role to the motivation of the main character. It fills us with this sense of the drama of this story from uh, the Isles. But it's written by a man uh, named Alex Mandel. I don't think he's Scottish. Uh, No, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of identity, I mean, why did you sing for, for Pixar, first of all? Yeah, it was a challenge. It was something different and very, very enjoyable. And I think with all of that, one um, thing that they did, which was a, a very respectful nod, I think, to the tradition, I think that perhaps their hands were bound in some ways that they couldn't use Gaelic in certain ways in the film, but they used a Gaelic song um, for the soundtrack to their television advert, which was broadcast during the Oscars to like 40 million people or something. Wow. This was the launch of their of their television campaign. So... I think that was a real vote of confidence. Yeah, in, that's great publicity culture. for Scotland, uh, Scottish it identity. Is. It's, it, it really is. And also just to the culture that they were very much involved in and were inspired by for the film. Julie Fallis, thanks so much for speaking with us. And I, I have to ask you, as we've been setting up this interview, you sign all your emails with uh, Dracht. Now, set me yes. straight on the pronunciation first and tell me what that means. With every good wish. Yeah, well, with every good wish to you too. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.
You can hear and see more of Julie Fallis. We've got a wonderful exclusive performance she gave recently at theworld.org. We should also let you know about an upcoming documentary on Julie Fallis and how her music has become a key part of Scottish identity and politics. That's one of several stories featured in the latest episode of the PBS television program, Soundtracks, which will air nationally next week on Friday, October 5th. As I say, check local listings for details. We've also got more information at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. From all of us, thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems, online at ritaallen.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.